All right, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Hey, appreciate that. Well, if you're a guest with us this morning, uh, whether online or in the room here, uh, good morning. So glad that you're here with us this morning to worship Jesus. Uh, we're going to take some time and learn from his word together. We believe that uh, we're called to be disciples, and the word disciple means learner. And so if we're learners, that means we have a teacher, and his name is Jesus. And so we want to look to the word that he's given to us um, and learn this morning, humbly and faithfully uh, from the word that he's given us. I want to start this morning with this quote. Uh, from C.S. Lewis in his masterful book on spiritual warfare called The Screwtape Letters. And this is a quote from Screwtape, who's a senior demon, and he's in the process of training and mentoring his subordinate or his nephew, Wormwood. And Wormwood's job is to take a patient and ultimately to lead him to know and to understand and to live life in the reality and realm of the father below the enemy, right? And so this is what Screwtape writes to Wormwood. He says, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. However, there's no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. All the habits of the patient both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. This morning we are continuing our series in the book of Nehemiah. And we've called this the unchanging mercy of God. And in the book of Nehemiah, what we're focusing on is the process and the journey of communal restoration and revival that can only take place through personal faith and action. If you've been with us in this journey, you'll remember that the book of Nehemiah, it's written in about 445 B.C., so 445 years before Christ comes on the scene. God's people have been in exile for uh, at least 70 years. They were carried off into exile into Babylon because they were disobedient to God. They basically had cheated on God. They basically had given God a stiff arm and said, we want to do this our own way. And so God, out of his mercy and his justice, sent them into Babylon. Mercy because he didn't just really destroy them justice because he had to do something about the way they were acting towards him. And so he sends them off into Babylon to learn some lessons. And so they're there for about 70 years. And where we find ourselves in the book of Nehemiah is that they've, they've returned now to Jerusalem. Nehemiah is actually uh, the, the encounter or the story of the, the third wave of return. They've already returned. They've rebuilt the temple. Uh, they've been established. Ezra has come and the word has been proclaimed again. And they're starting to learn how to relive in the realities of God's word. As, as a central belief in reality, but the walls around the city are still destroyed. And it's not just because they were destroyed in 586 B.C. a long time ago. It's because they've been destroyed in about the last 20 years. Now, Nehemiah, he was an Israelite born in captivity in Babylon. He's the cupbearer to the king, King Artaxerxes, the Persian king. And what happens is he hears the word from some brothers that come and they tell him about the destitution still of the people of God. Because although, again, the temple is there and the word is established, there's no wall around them, and so they're vulnerable. And there's outside forces that are wanting to continue to try to oppress them and keep them from reestablishing their cultural identity and their relationship with the Lord as central. And so there's all kinds of issues. The people of God are in a destitute place and position. And so Nehemiah, he goes before the king after prayer and praying to God and asking for courage and, and faith in that. And he does that. And somehow, for some reason, Artaxerxes, the very one who had squashed their attempt to rebuild the wall 20 years ago, says, okay, go. I, I give you the, the right and permission to do that. So he does. 
And what Nehemiah does first is he surveys the land. He looks around. He doesn't share immediately the vision that God has given him, nor what he has the power to do. And he surveys the land. And after doing that and realizing, yes, this is as destitute as I had heard and I had thought, and my heart is as broken as it should be, he rallies the people and they begin to build the wall. And what we looked at last week in chapter 3 and 4 is that this is a list of hundreds of people who are working on this wall, maybe even thousands, from all the different clans from all over the place. You have perfumers and you have skilled workers and non-skilled workers. You have common laborers and you have, uh, like, not royalty, but you have people that are governors over certain aspects. As Joel said, you have the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Everybody comes together, united around this vision and this purpose of rebuilding this wall to help establish God as center again, the temple as center again, this culture and this language and this people of being set apart for God as their way of life again, again, after having lived for 70 years in Babylon. And what you find out is that as they seek again this process of communal restoration and revival, rebuilding Of course, there's opposition, right? And so last week we saw in chapter 4 that it's opposition from the outside. That there's Ammonites and Arabs and Ashdodites that come around and they attack them literally physically. And they say, we want to destroy them. We want to stop them from doing this. Why? They feel threatened by Nehemiah coming and they feel threatened by the people of God reestablishing themselves as the people of God. And so they come literally and attacking them. And so the people of God are not now only building the wall and working the wall, holding their spackles and their spades in one hand, but they've got their swords in the other. And they're having to do a physical work of restoration and they're having to do a spiritual work of fighting off and trying to restore. And where we come now to chapter 5 is that Again, we realize it's not just a a physical work, but it's a spiritual work. And that any work of communal restoration and revival that's going to happen through people taking personal faith and ownership, personal action of the faith and of of their community, again, there's going to be external oppression and external interference. But we come to chapter 5 now, and we find that there's also something else that needs to be overcome. There's another form of opposition that needs to be acknowledged and dealt with and realized in order to reestablish themselves as the people of God, faithful to him with him as the center, him establishing them in faith and moving forward into the vision that he's called them to. And so join me in reading Nehemiah chapter 5 if you would. And we're going to read the whole chapter today, but we're going to work through it through chunks. But chapter 5 verse 1 says this. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, So let us get grain, that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For our men, for other men, excuse me, have our feet in our vineyards. So last week, the people come together. They link arms. They have one another's backs. They rebuild 40 sections of the wall. It's been about two months now, this journey of rebuilding the wall. And what they find out now is that there's not only external oppression that they need to fight against, but now they have to open their eyes to the reality of oppression and injustice and another enemy, but actually now it's inside the walls. The sobering report that there are some, and Nehemiah is very intentional here to use the word your Jewish brothers, 
these reports that some with inside the very family of God, inside the community that is trying to rebuild and reestablish itself, there are those inside the walls now, never mind those outside the walls, that are forcing others to be their own slaves. They are forcing their own brothers and sisters, their own flesh and blood, though maybe not from their nuclear family, but from the family of God, to actually mortgage their fields and mortgage uh, their land, mortgage their homes in order to have enough money to actually go and, and buy food. They're causing their brothers and sisters in the family of God, again, to have to mortgage their properties and the things that they have in order to pay the taxes to King Artaxerxes. There's this, what this chapter is doing is bringing us into focus the, the economic hardship of the people during this transition back to Jerusalem. And realize there's, there's five things here. There's a famine that has taken place, so food is scarce. There's these merchants now that have become greedy, and instead of just selling things at normal price to their brothers and sisters inside of the wall, inside the community, what they've done instead is they've inflated the prices. And they've made it so that people can't just go by easily. You also have the king of Persia, again, Artaxerxes, and he's increased taxes in order to pay for the, exp- the, the rise in imperial expenditure. And as a result, the people are finding it impossible to, to do that. The people are in such dire straits, it's such a dire situation, that they're compelled to sell their own family members into slavery to other Jews. Now, we need to acknowledge that that was a common practice in, in the ancient Near East culture. But we also need to acknowledge and remember that according to God's law that was given to Moses, there was a way and a provision for people to be completely restored and be, regain their freedom. And yet what we see here is it appears that the family of God is totally ignoring that. The Israelites are ignoring God's instruction to free and to release, to reestablish, to allow people to live in the freedom that they were created for. And finally, we're going to find out that we have these Israelite nobles, these officials who, again, are these money lenders, and they're taking advantage of the anguish. They're, They're exacting or demanding exorbitant interest rates from other members of the family of God. And so as they seek communal renewal and revival, again, there's not only external forces and oppression that needs to be dealt with, but there's internal oppression and injustice that needs to be acknowledged and dealt with. And so what does Nehemiah do? Let's read together verses 6 through 13. Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials and I said to them, you're exacting interest each from his brother. And again, you'll notice Nehemiah uses the word brother about seven times in this short little passage, again, to show them who they are actually doing this oppression to. And I held a great assembly against them and I said to them, we, as far as we are able, we've bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you, even you now, you sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And the people were silent, and they could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon these exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And then they said, We will restore these things and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. 
And I called the priests and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from this house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord and the people did as they had promised. What Nehemiah does here is that he responds to the injustice emotionally, intellectually, and volitionally. He tells us that he's angry. How could he not be that his own people, as again, they're trying to reestablish and and reinvigorate and revive their community. Now some from within the wall come and they they force this injustice on others. He responds with anger. But we see he doesn't just stop there. It says, I took counsel with myself. Another way to think about that is that he said, I took time to ponder and consider how I was actually feeling. I didn't just act irrationally out of my emotion. I took time to take stock of how I was feeling, what was going on, so I could respond appropriately. And so he responds with with an intellectual manner. I pondered it, some translations say. But then it says he went beyond that. He says, I responded by calling out those who were doing this injustice inside the community. He responded volitionally. He did something about it. Just a a simple note there. We need to focus today on on the internal oppression and injustice that's taking place. But just a side note, as we're living in this world and there's a lot of different injustices that are popping up, I want you to think about, as you hear about these things, how do you respond? I think sometimes often we respond emotionally and then we can even respond intellectually and sometimes we just stop there. (laughs) Nehemiah, what he actually does, and again, we don't have time to focus on that today, but what Nehemiah actually does is he allows his emotions and his intellect, he takes a moment to soberly think about and look at what's going on, survey, I would say even present it before the Lord, because we see Nehemiah do that over and over again throughout the scripture. But with that posture, he then actually goes and does something volitionally with it. And we need to begin to be a people that I think more and more like that. Anyways, I digress, because what happens here is Nehemiah, he calls together a charge against these nobles, and he does it in a public assembly. He has the gall to call out and call the people to face their sin, to face their injustice, not privately, but in front of the Now, this was a a regular practice for the people of God to do, but he does that. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? Because in his mind, again, the sin is so grave because it's a sin against your own brothers. It's a sin against your own family members. It's a sin against those sitting next to you in the pews. It's a sin against those who you just linked arms and you fought off the enemy. You had your spade in one hand, you had your sword in the other, and we restored 40 sections of this wall together in order to protect ourselves, in order that we wouldn't be vulnerable against all the injustice, all the oppression, all the hurt, all the pain, all the pressures coming from the outside, only for us to turn around and look and realize there's enemies in our own camp. And Nehemiah says, how dare you? How could you? We're the people of God. These are your brothers and sisters. These are those who you are linked in covenant with, with the covenant God. You have a special identity, a special calling, a special way in which you are to operate and to function with God at the center, his word as the authority, one another as brothers and sisters, linking arms, yes, to go out and to change and transform the world in which you're living. And you have right now a chance to restart and reestablish all that you are in Christ and are in God and all that he's called you to be. And yet you would turn and do that to one another? He even says, look, we worked so hard, worked so hard to get our brothers and sisters free from the slavery of other nations, and we already bought them back. We won them back, and we brought them inside the walls. They're here with us now. They've helped us rebuild the temple. They've helped us rebuild these walls, and now you would make them slaves again? 
This is an outrageous atrocity. And Nehemiah calls out the sin and he calls them up. Greater faith and understanding to the standards of God and his kingdom. Now before we get all crazy and highbrow and beat down on them that are doing this. (laughs) Here's the thing, to be fair. These Israelites, where were they born? In Babylon, in captivity. What have they seen around them in the culture? They've seen that you, you make loans and you charge high interest and you have people as your slaves and you treat them poorly. And you don't care what's happening to them as long as you get yours because that's what you do in Babylon. And so these people, these Israelites, what are they doing? They're basically taking the culture that they know, the culture that they grew up in, the ways around them, and they don't know any better. See, in their eyes, I think they're actually doing something pretty innocent and pretty simple. Again, because they're doing just what they know. They're doing what is, is common in the, in the ways in the eyes of the greater culture that they grew up in and that they, were, that they inherited. I think the way that Nehemiah comes to them and he calls them out and he, again, he calls them up to God's purposes and God's ways. And it says that they, they turn, right? Did you, did you notice that? It was so easy. It says, they, they, moreover, I and my brothers, in verse 11, he says, return to them this very day, the fields, the vineyards. In verse 12, it says, they said to them then, yeah, we'll restore it, we'll do this, we'll require nothing from them and we'll do as you say. Like, it's so, you know what I'm saying? Like, they didn't push back, they didn't argue, they didn't fight about it. I think it was, for them, it was this awareness of going, oh gosh, you're right, Nehemiah, whoa. Here we are, free people now, in our own land, trying to reestablish the ways of God, and oh my gosh, we didn't even realize, we're actually taking the culture and the ways of the world, and we've now brought it inside of the walls, and we didn't even know. That, to me, honestly, is the only explanation as to why the people would turn so easily and so quickly. You don't see the people of God do that anywhere else ever. (laughs) unfortunately. But what Nehemiah is saying is the very things, yeah, that led us off into exile, the very things (laughs) that Ezekiel spoke out against and explained and said, this is why you're going off into exile, the exacting of of interest and uh, calling each other into slavery and being unjust to one another. This is the very reason why over 100 years ago you had to go into slavery. Nehemiah is saying, why would we want to go back and do those same things? And the people go, oh gosh. It's almost like their eyes were just open to this reality of their their foolishness, of their state, of their condition. I want to take a minute and just talk about a framework that I think kind of is at play here, but in order to help us understand how this can relate to us. Um, A number of years ago, a man named Charles Taylor, he wrote like an 800-page book called A Secular Age. And in that book, he talks about how Western civilization has pretty much over the last six, seven hundred years just become more and more and more secular. Meaning, God has been removed from the center and the whole point and focus now, the goal basically of society is this autonomy or this freedom from anything transcendent and this focus on the imminent. And Taylor walks through and what he shows us is that, yeah, about 600 years ago, God and faith were at the center of society and of Western culture, Right? There was a church that was on every corner, every block. The, the church was the center. People came around and there was this community. And what happens is we moved from there. And art even was focused on God. All the things, right? If you think about culture. And we moved to this place then, culture, the Western civilization, to what he called secular one. And the focus there, and the, the, what happened there was this suppression of God in society. It's kind of what Paul writes about in Romans 1. He said they, they sought to neither know God nor seek God. And they just 
slowly moving God away from the center and faith away from the center and drifting out. And what this creates for Christians is this, this sense of conflict. That's what, that's what began to be the, the kind of the environment for Christians at that point. After that, after a couple hundred years, it moved to secular too, which is now it's not only trying to suppress God within society, but it's actually remove God and empty society of God altogether. It would be Romans 2, where they blatantly are turning their backs and just entering and engaging into sin. In this secular 2 phase, you have science is greater than the divine. And what you have then is a culture for Christians where it creates these like culture wars. Not saying that's a good thing, but that's the way we feel, right? But where we are now over this journey of the last 600 years and this change in the culture and the environment around us is now we're in this place that he calls secular 3. It's this contested space where people say, you do what you do, and I'll do what I'll do, but actually not really. (laughs) There's this sense of pluralistic freedom, again, that says you can have yours and all of mine, but anyone can believe anything they want, but no one can believe that they believe the right thing or the right way. And you can believe what you want to believe at home, but don't you dare bring that into a public space. Because then that eliminates, again, this pluralistic freedom that we've worked so hard to have. Believe what you want, do it on your own time, but don't dare come and impose that on others. And Taylor says what this has created for Christians is a disenchanted world. The world of 600 years ago for Christians was enchanted. There was a center and a centrality to faith and belief and the transcendent and God and spirituality. We understood and we knew that, but slowly Western civilization has moved to this place where now all that matters and all that is is this physical world, the material world, the things that I can see, control, and manage and do. And really the goal of this, if you go to the next slide, the goal is freedom from anything outside of self. Taylor says basically the the, the goal and the focus of this secular age and world is that We want freedom from anything outside of self. And he uses this phrase, exclusive, self-sufficient humanism. By exclusive, what he means, it's a view of human flourishing, not grounded in any transcendent source such as God, and it's without any good beyond nature. It's just, again, focused on this material world and this life. And the defining of flourishing there in this place of secularism, it's, again, freedom and autonomy from the larger society And definitely it's freedom and autonomy from anything religious or spiritual in general, but the Christian God in particular. And as I say that, and we look at this, I can feel in this room the reality of going, whoa, yeah, that's where I live. That's where we live. Taylor goes on to talk about what he calls and presents as the imminent frame. And the imminent frame, basically he's saying, we all have these frames of life, right? You know the, world, the term like worldview, or if you have glasses, right, certain frames. There used to be glasses or a frame of viewing life, again, that allowed the transcendent in. And my life was porous or soft and available to receive input from God, from things of the spiritual world, God in particular, Christ at center. But now in secularism, particularly in this form that we have it, I don't, I'm no longer porous and open to receiving or aware of the transcendent of the spiritual of God. I am now a callous self where I don't want, again, anything outside of me to come and influence me, what I believe, what I think, what I feel, what I do. No, no, this is me. And there's three major shifts that have taken place in culture. And this imminent frame, it's basically can be defined as a shift from God to me, from God's presence and purpose to what I want, from an eternal perspective to now.
And basically the culture is saying, it's about me and what I want right now. Why, why do I bring this up as we're looking at this chapter? See, I think the reality for the Israelites was that the factual, there had been factual changes in their existence, right? There had been things that changed factually for them after living in Babylon for 70 years. And as they came back now to live again in Jerusalem inside the walls, things were, things were different. They just were. But not only that, they had been heirs of and also participants in a new interpretation of life, a new way of doing culture and life together because they were living in Babylon. And I think, church, the same can be true of us. That's part of what Taylor's point is, is that we too, at the Western society, as it has shifted and changed in secular one and two to secular three, is that there's been factual changes in our Western society. Things have changed and shifted, but we also too have become heirs and participants in creating this, this new culture because of conflicts of interpretation. And just as the Israelites, as they came to reestablish themselves inside the land that God had promised them and reestablish the temple and Ezra reestablishes the word and now they rebuild this wall to protect themselves from outside forces. Again, what they did was they just took the culture of the world and that they were fighting against and they brought it and they put it inside the church. And I think for them and for us, it's easy. We have to acknowledge we all struggle and we wrestle with this secularism. We wrestle with this imminent frame. I'll be the first to admit that. We do because that's the culture we live in. It's invasive and it's pervasive and it's, it's just all around us. It's the water that we're swimming in, so to speak. And just like the Israelites, we can sometimes blindly, not even aware, just begin to take the things of the culture around us and adopt it and live into it because that's the water we grew up in, that's the culture around us, that's all the stuff. And we just take it and we bring it inside and we go, yeah, it's okay, it's all good because it's fair play out there. And, and this is just the culture we're in, and this, this is just the reality of it, and so here we are. But here's the thing. When you look at that imminent frame, me, what I want now, you and I all know deep down inside that that is not the answer and that that is not going to work. Would you agree? We know where that leads. And yet, you and I, all of us, the Israelites, us, we do adopt that framework and that worldview in different ways and in different areas of our life. Even though we would all say, I know that that does not work. That imminent frame is not the right way to live. We've all unwittingly adopted notions of freedom and autonomy that at their core are antithetical to the gospel. Just as the Israelites adopted forms and ways that were antithetical to the kingdom of God that they knew that they were called to live in. But it was just pervasive. It's what they knew. It's what they grew up in. It's what they inherited. It's innocent out there. That's the rules of the game out there. So what do we do? What do we do? Nehemiah in verse 14, he, he sets an example for us. He shows us what he did and how he calls the people to follow him in reestablishing the frame. Moreover, Nehemiah, from that time on, I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king. Twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me, they laid heavy burdens on the people and they took from them their daily rations, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and it required no land, and all my servants were gathered there to work. Moreover, there were, not, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. 
Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Well, what's Nehemiah doing here? Now, we've got to remember, Nehemiah, as he's writing this, it's kind of a memoir. So he's giving us both history at one, one hand, and on the other hand, like he's writing his interactions, his feelings as it's happening in a place. And what he does here is he shows and he juxtaposes, here's the greed, here's the consumption, here's the injustice of the people to one another inside. And he, because they adopted this imminent framework, all as they thought about was themselves, what they needed right now to survive in the midst of this culture of scarcity and fear, and when they wanted it, which was right now. And for them, it was okay to go after all of that and do that, even at the expense of their brothers, fellow brothers and sisters. And what Nehemiah does is he gives us a different frame to consider. What Nehemiah does is he says, I lived, though, where? I lived to continue with my eyes up. I lived with reverence for God, and that allowed me to live with compassion for others. See, what the imminent frame does when it's just me and what I want now, that's all it does. Is it, it's about me and what I want now. So it doesn't matter what you need or what you want or what you're going through or what you're suffering or how I'm called to the responsibility that I have to walk with you or anything. No, no, this is about me, what I want now. And Nehemiah says, no, no, no. Again, we're, we're a set-apart people. We're a called-apart people. We're a people that have a testimony that actually we're to give to the onlooking world. And if we don't live the right way, we ruin and we spoil that testimony. We've got to lift our eyes up. And he says, that's what I did. I lived with my eyes up, focused on God, out of the fear of the Lord, out of awe of God and who he is, him at the center, creator of all things, Lord of all, the one who establishes everything good and maintains it. And doing that allowed me, then, he says, to live with compassion for these people. He looked around and he saw the plight of his brothers and sisters inside the wall. And he goes, there's no way I'm going to charge them. There's no way I'm going to let them do these things. I'm going to pay and do the things that I do. And I'm even going to give some of it away. Why? Because this is my family. These are the people of God. And I know who I am and I know what I have. And I can live with that freedom. In church, when I think about Christ and him coming four or five hundred years after this, and what he does, the gospels say that Jesus came. What did he do? He proclaimed the kingdom of God. See, we're called as followers of Jesus and not to live with an imminent frame, with this small frame that views the world in, every, in this microcosmic, myopic view where it's all about me, what I want now. But we're called to live with a different frame, a transcendent frame. If the opposite of imminence is transcendence, we're called to live with this transcendent frame. And it's a frame that, that I think is called the kingdom of God. To live in the ways of Christ in his model, his example, not just Nehemiah's, though Nehemiah's foreshadowing pointing to what Jesus called us, how he called us to live. James K.A. Smith, who, who wrote a book called How Not to Be Secular um, in response or at kind of shrinking down the 800-page thing that, that Taylor did, he also wrote another book called You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. And he says this, he says, Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and our longings to his to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God, and to crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. Again, juxtaposing the imminent frame where it's my kingdom, all about me, what I want now, versus the kingdom of God, when it's about Christ being all in all at the center. His presence, his purpose, his timing and the call to live for eternity, not just now. 
I kind of made this list just to, to share with you before I give you our Nehemiah challenge for the week. I made this list thinking about how do I function sometimes in Babylon versus in the kingdom of God. And so this is, this is my struggle of in Babylon versus in the kingdom of God. When I'm living with a Babylon mindset, I live, that, I live with fear that there's never. But when I live in a kingdom of God mindset, I remember that Christ is my provision and he is more than enough. When I live with the imminent frame focused on Babylon, I just want life easy and burden free. But when I live understanding I'm called to be in the kingdom of God, his life is not easy, but his yoke is easy and his burden is light. When I adopt the things of Babylon, I have to constantly prove to myself who I am. But when I live in the realities of the kingdom of God, I know who I am in Christ and I'm a child of God. When I adopt the worldview of Babylon, it's the one who has the most toys that wins. But when I live in the realities of the kingdom, I know that Christ has freely given me all things and I can then therefore can freely give away to others. When I live in an imminent frame, I seek my glory. But when I live with an eternal frame, the kingdom of God frame, Christ in me is the hope of glory. When I live in the ways of Babylon, blessed. When I live in the realities of the kingdom, I know that I've already been given every spiritual blessing in Christ, is what Paul wrote in Ephesians 1. When I live according to Babylon, I'm seeking to live my best life now. When I live with a transcendent frame, I know that I'm saved into an eternity with God that, yes, begins now, and the, but the best thing for me is to follow Jesus as closely as possible. When I live in an imminent frame, I need to create my own happiness. When I live with an eternal frame, the joy of the Lord is my strength. When I live in the ways of Babylon, all I'm looking for and trying to find is true love, that which will satisfy me. When I live with a kingdom perspective, I know that Jesus Christ alone is the embodiment of God's perfect love for me. And he freely gives it over and over and over. When I live in an imminent frame, I'm not sure where I'm going, but I know I need to create my own destiny. And I believe I can do that. But when I live with a transcendent frame, I know that Jesus has gone ahead of me and he's prepared a place for me. And I'm called to follow him by faith to live into his plans and live into his purposes and to believe that I have a destiny already set for me and it's good. When I live with an imminent frame, I have to be strong. I have to do things in my own strength according to my own resources. When I live with a kingdom of God perspective, I know that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, whether I have much or whether I have little, whether I'm abased or whether I'm abounding. God is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. It's his strength in me. When I live with an imminent frame, I take this view that's called moralistic therapeutic deism. I try to be good. I want to feel good. And yeah, God is there. But when I live with a transcendent frame, I know that I'm invited to live in a relationship of love and obedience with the living Christ. When I live with an imminent frame, I have to constantly prove my worth and my value to others, and it's so tiring. When I live with a transcendent frame, it is Jesus Christ alone who has declared my worth and my value when he died on the cross, forgave me and redeemed me and said, I am loved and I am worth it. When I live in an imminent frame, I live out of fear of man and it drives me to pursue knowledge and everything else to try to look good. But when I live with a transcendent frame, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of my wisdom and my prosperity. When I live with an imminent frame, I actually know it's not real. It's not going to work. It's a facade. 
But when I live with a transcendent view, a kingdom of God frame, I know that there is an eternity, again, that begins now with Christ. And that brings about a reality that I can only experience by faith. And though I don't get to experience it all, and I live in this now but not yet, I know that it's real. I know that it's true. And I can feel the love of Christ and the Spirit of Christ calling me up to something greater and beyond just the focus of here. And that feels far more real, actually, than the focus of just what's here. So church, here's the thing. When we live with imminent frame, both living out there in the world, and if we bring that inside here, inside the walls, what we end up doing is stunting and destroying the process of communal restoration and revival that we're actually seeking, and we don't even realize it. My heart and my prayer this morning is that even just talking about this and putting this this framework in front of us, that just as Nehemiah came and he called out in the assembly and he brought before them and he said, what you're doing is not right, that somehow today the Spirit of God would wake up each one of us to realities and ways in which we are adopting and taking on the things of the world and we're just trying to bring it inside these walls and pretend like it's okay and act like it's not. So here's your Nehemiah challenge this week. Here's what I want you to consider. How are you withholding or exacting, meaning demanding, something from others in our community in this season in a way that actually destroys our ability to engage in communal restoration and revival? How are you withholding or exacting? Because that's what they were doing to one another, demanding something from others in our community in this season. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to share with someone you trust this week. Why? Why do you think that is? And have an honest conversation about it in light of the kingdom of God. And the why might be going, you know what, I'm realizing that I'm living in this imminent frame. And this is what's causing me to demand certain things from other people in this community. Or I'm living with this imminent frame and this is what's causing me actually to withhold from giving to this community things that I know I'm, I'm called to and supposed to. Have a discussion about that with someone that you trust. And again, talk about it in light of the kingdom of God, the greater frame, the reality of Christ, who he is, what he has done for you, and who you are because of what he's done for you. See, that that frame alone is what changes and transforms us by the love of God, by the grace of God over time, in the midst of every circumstance, in the midst of every scenario, both inside the walls and outside the walls. That's the only way that we'll live free, truly free, And so I just want to pray for us this morning. And Kel, if you want to come and close us and lead us in worship. But God, this morning, we acknowledge that far too often, I acknowledge this morning that far too often I live with a frame of reference, with me at the center, what I believe I need to be happy, to be successful, to appear those ways, and to do it and seek it all in my own vainglory just for right now. God, as I mentioned and as I talk about it, I consider it this week, I acknowledge and realize it's, it's really not freedom. It's really not flourishing, though that's what we think we're seeking. And so, God, I pray this morning that by your mercy, in the same way that Nehemiah came forward and he called out in the assembly, and the people's eyes were opened and they saw the mistake of their ways, God, would you do the same for us? 
Would you remove the, the scales from our eyes? Remove the, the covers over our ears. Remove the hardness over our minds. Would you remove the callousness, yes, God, from our hearts and make us porous this morning to your spirit, to the work and the move of your love that wants to open our eyes and make us aware of the things and the ways that we are living within imminent frame. By your spirit, God, would you lead and guide us into truth? Help us to fix our eyes upon you, Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the one who for the joy set before him did not live himself with an imminent frame, but lived with an eternal one, that lived with a kingdom of God mindset. And he, he came down and he walked among us and he showed us the way to live in true freedom, the way to live truly loved, truly flourishing, not according to human design, but according to God, your design. Jesus, thank you for embodying that love for us even to the point of death, death on a cross, and showing us that that is our value, that that is our worth, that that is the depth of your love for us, the depth that you would go to set us truly free, to allow us to truly flourish, God, to truly experience life as you intended it and as we long for. God, thank you for your love embodied here in this room and online, in our community, God, through one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, help us to lift our eyes off ourselves and upon you and to lift our eyes and to see one another, to see the pain, to see the hurt, and to be willing to step in, not protecting ourselves, but entering in with one another to fight for one another, God. Yes, against the oppression of the outside, but also against the things that are not right here on the inside. Give us the grace, God. Give us the courage, Lord Jesus, to follow you with a transcendent view, the reality, our eyes fixed on the reality of the kingdom of God where you, Jesus, are center, you sit on the throne, you reign in rule, and you dictate lovingly, <laughs> compassionately, mercifully, speaking to us who we are and what we are to do. God, have mercy like the people here. Would we, would we turn and say, yes, we will do that. Yes, we will do that. I charge us, God, with that this morning to be a people that say yes to you into living according to your realities, the reality of your kingdom. Bless us, God, to that end. Establish us to that end. Renew us and revive us, God, to that end. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.